Before we begin our study tonight, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. As we're beginning tonight, I, I want us to think about several things. One of them is that we are in that period called the days of awe, the yamim naraim, the, the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, in which we really want to examine ourselves before the Lord, and we want to consider carefully the mercies that he shows us. That's one thing I want us to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is we're right in the middle of hurricane season. And uh, the people on, on the East Coast from the Carolinas up to the southern part of the Virginia coast are really facing intense heavy rains and floodings. And though the, the wind speed has died down for Hurricane Florence, um, indeed it's now I think a tropical storm but there's tremendous flooding and, and the rains are gonna continue as well, as I understand, because it's a very slow moving storm. So with storm surges still possible and with great flooding possible, it's, it's good for us to take a moment to pray for the people who are vulnerable. As well, there's a super typhoon uh, heading towards and moving in the direction of uh, the Philippines a typhoon with winds, as I understand, as high as 180 miles an hour. So just super dangerous. So let's just pray. Let's ask the Lord for his mercies and let's never be afraid to ask him to send quiet and to send help and to um, just send his shield of protection. Lord, we pray now in the name of Yeshua for for all those who are now in the middle of uh, the storm of Florence and of the super typhoon in the Philippines. And we're praying for your protection for them. We're praying for mercy. We're praying for safety. We thank you for the courageous ones who risk their lives to save others. Those first responders who put their own well-being at risk in order to bring people out of trouble. Lord, we pray that you would send your shield of protection and your peace to calm the storms. And we pray, Lord, that as you showed mercy to us during recent storms and past years, you would show mercy as well to others. Let those who call on your name uh, experience your love and your faithfulness. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. I was watching the Weather Channel, and I was thinking how important it is for them to, to see and to take notice of what is important and to grasp the meaning of it, to understand it, and to communicate to others as well. Same thing for, of course, the, the, the weather service of all kinds. And I was trying to imagine something, it, what if, what if the uh, Weather Channel just got stupid and didn't understand what they were doing? 
didn't understand what was important. And so they start looking like at the storm, but they don't understand storms. Imagine that, not understanding storms. Well, if you're the Weather Channel, you gotta understand the weather, right? And if you, this sounds silly, but I was trying to imagine, what if they were like looking at the clouds and thinking of the bunnies they could see in the clouds and the interesting shapes, and they were lost in childhood imagination? It wouldn't be useful at all, would it? It it would be ridiculous. They'd be out of business in no time. And what if they saw the right things, but they didn't have the means of connecting their team with their broadcast studios? I, I did see one person who was out on the shore in the Myrtle Beach area who had a good wireless headset that can endure storms and wind and rain, and I thought, that's really good. And they probably are having to use satellite connections at that point because uh, there's no electricity and the cell phone towers probably aren't working right and all of that. And I thought, well, what if someone just didn't think about making the connections? Those people would be out there ready to do their job and to communicate, but without a connection, nothing's going to happen for the rest of us at least, we'll get no benefit for it. And I was thinking in this way because it it connected for me a thought process that I was going through when I was reading the Torah portion and then the Haftor and then the British Hadashah this week because Moses is continuing in this theme about Uh, having eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that understand. And he's trying to build something up in Israel, but at the same time, he has a word from the Lord that he's going to die. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had that word, I'd probably get distracted about everything else that was going on. He did not. He stayed focused. But in drawing close to the Lord, the Lord said to him, you know, it's not going to go so well in the future because the people are going to forget the covenant. They're going to forget the foundation of the blessings. When I bring them into the land that I promised and they're living there, they're going to forget that I was the one who, who got them there, that I was the one who fulfilled the promises of the covenant And they will not be mindful of the covenant, and they will live as if the covenant has no importance whatsoever. And then things are not going to go well. Now, I don't know about you, but if I heard that kind of word, I would be thinking, okay, it's my last few days or weeks or whatever, and you're telling me none of these people are really in good shape and they're going to be worse off later. I give up. Goodbye. It would be so easy, wouldn't it, in the face of that information and that knowledge just to throw in the towel, if you will, and to say, what's the point? But the Lord had a point. His point is, people are going to go through that, and then they need to find a way back to me. And in order to do that, there have to be some that stay faithful. And he promises to preserve a remnant. Maybe you are part of a remnant in your family 
Maybe everybody else has sort of gone in the wrong direction, but you're holding on. Maybe you are one of those people who returned to the Lord and others had given up on you. I know in my case, if anybody knew me back in 1975, I'll just pick a happy year, in 1975, you would say, um, there is no chance this guy's coming to the Lord. Not a little chance. No chance. There is no chance. And you would be right. <laughs> There's no chance. No chance whatsoever. Based on who I was and the direction I was going and how I thought and how I felt and how I was leading my life, there was zero chance I would come to the Lord. And for that, I'm grateful to God that he doesn't just measure the odds. And nor are there people who draw close to him who are just looking at the odds and say, well, no chance of this, I'm moving on. There are some people who say, it doesn't matter if there's no chance, God's put this person in my heart. Maybe you know someone or care about someone for whom it looks like there's no chance. How many can relate to that? You got someone who you want to see come to the Lord, but just being objective, it looks like no chance. What can be the, the thing that turns everything? It's you get it in your heart and in your mind and in your understanding that, that God wants to make a difference. He wants to change things and change them. And you start praying, not as if it were true, but that it were true that it was true, that it is true, and you start thanking the Lord. So maybe you know someone and you're saying, Lord, I can look at them objectively and see they're not interested. And yet I can look at you objectively and say you're interested in them. I'm so grateful that someone else recognized God was interested in me before I was interested in him. I'm so grateful that someone else prayed and made themselves available and kept praying and got other people involved in praying for me so that things could change in the spiritual atmosphere, if you will, but not only that, in my spiritual condition. And things did change for me in dramatic ways and important ways. Well, this week we're reading about Moses and he's having this fellowship with the Lord and the Lord says, you know, it's going to go down the tubes, basically. And what are we to do with that information? What are we to do with that, with that challenge? It won't go well for Israel when Israel forgets the covenant. It won't go well for anyone when you forget the covenant with God. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. If you become mindful of God's covenant and you turn to him and you begin to walk with faith and faithfulness with him, you know, he'll put things back together. He'll fix things. How many have lives, besides me, how many have lives where it was probably a challenge for God to put things back together? But he, was, but he did. He did. 
Yeah, he's still working. Well, he'll work all the way to the end. In fact, Moses' life is, a, is an example of that. Moses is told by the Lord, because you dishonored me at that particular moment and you diminished my glory in the eyes of Israel, you're not going in to the land. I'll take them in and I'll use Joshua, but not you. You can watch from a distance where I'm going to take them, but you're not going in. And that helps us understand that even Moses wasn't perfect. Even Moses got things off. But God loved Moses and worked with Moses, no doubt. It doesn't go well for us when we forget God's covenant and we try to live our lives without faith or faithfulness. Another way of putting it is this. It actually goes better for people when they remember the covenant. Of, with God, and when they try to live with faith, or intentionally live with faith and faithfulness. The human dilemma can only be solved with the God solution. No one can solve the human dilemma on their own. In fact, that's one of the greatest challenges we each face. We think, I can solve this myself. I can do it. I can put this back together. I can fix it. But it's important to remember that we sin. We don't just make mistakes. We sin. And that we sin against God. We sin against His holiness. And during this time of days of awe, we're remembering that His atonement is so special and so important for us. He provided an atonement that we couldn't provide. He has paid the penalty for our sins, our many sins, the sins we committed before, the sins we're in the middle of, the sins we're, we will commit. He's provided an adequate atoning sacrifice for us. But, even though he has done everything in terms of providing an atonement, there's something for us to do, and that is we have to do our part. We have to humble ourselves before God. We have to recognize our sin. We have to deal with the fact that our sin separates us from God, and we need something that can atone for that separation, and that's where Yeshua comes in. It's so important to us. Now, if you forget it's important to you and like, well, I'm good with God. Yeah, I'm a believer, but, but, but. It, it's like forgetting the covenant. If you forget that other people also need to come into the mercies of God and have the same problem we all have, which is being separated from God, we all need a common solution. We need God. We need God. We absolutely need God. Can you do certain things without God? Absolutely you can. Can you do everything without God? Not everything good. Everything bad, yeah. <laughs> can you make a mess of everything without God? Yeah, all by yourself. You're lonesome, you can do it. So for each one of us, we come to this place where we have to accept the fact that we sin, not just make mistakes. It's not just our personality. It's not just our temperament. It's not just our, our quirks, which may be many. 
It's that we sin. And so it's useful for us to face our sin. And these days of awe are important for facing that. It's important, it's necessary for us to actively accept Yeshua as the sacrifice. Now in this week's reading, we learned that the time for Moses to die is near and Israel's going forward without Moses, though they will need to remember him and his teachings and what they learned from him and the example he gave in his life. But they're going to go into the promised land without him. And the Lord has basically said to Moses, we'll read about it in the coming weeks, you're not going with them. Which sounds tragic, doesn't it? But there's another message that's embedded in the text. You're not going with them. You're going with me. Moses is not being abandoned or rejected, not at all. It's time to leave them now. But it's not time for God to say, okay, Moses, I'm finished with you. In fact, in, in, in the coming weeks, we're going to read something about how the Lord buries Moses. There's some debate as to how to understand it. But the Hebrew in its most simple says that the Lord buried Moses. But it uses the Lord in the first part of the sentence and then a pronoun that could be translated he or a form of the verb that's third person singular. And uh, the best translation, I think, is the Lord himself buried Moses. Some, some people have difficulty with that for, for a lot of reasons, and they say, well, it must have been angels who did it. But the text doesn't say that. Others say, Moses buried himself which is like the most awful idea I could imagine. Can you imagine this? It's worse than, you know, some dark Western, you know, where you're forced to dig your own grave. And then how do you, what, throw yourself in the grave and pull the dirt down on you or something? I don't know. Or go into a cave that you now say, well, this is my burial place and lay down and say, I'm a goner now, you know, it's all over. That would be the most terrible thing. It, 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 I don't think it's what happened. But some people do not like the idea that God buried Moses for a simple reason. It means that God, in fact, can enter into our material and physical world and he can engage in material things and physical things. And this goes against certain people's theological uh, machinations and prejudices. And so they have to rule it out. I even read one, one uh, sage who said, it was like the, the pure soul of Moses who buried the body of Moses. And I thought, how does a pure soul handle a shovel? Probably not. And that view, I think, has been rejected by quite a, f a lot of reasonable people who gave one thought. Yes, yeah, like, I don't think so. But 
imagine this. Imagine that the Lord is saying to Moses, it's time to leave them. It's time to go with me. And you've lived a full life. And so I'm going with you. And I'm going to dig your grave. And I, when you die, I'll be the one who washes your body. And I'll be the one who wraps you. And I will be the one who respectfully places you in the grave. And I will be the one who covers your body and fills the grave up. And I will be there burying you. How awesome. How awesome. And then I could imagine the Lord saying something like, and I don't want anybody else at the funeral, and here's why. I don't want anybody else who's like posturing and saying they were always showing you respect and listening to you, because you know how they were. <laughs> I don't want anybody taking credit for being what they weren't. I don't even want them to know where you're buried, because I don't want them to come and worship at your grave. That would be a distraction. I'm going to do it myself. I will bury you. I will show all my respect and all my love and all my honor to you. And I will see you on the other side. I think that's how it happened. Something like that. Of course, I'm adding words and ideas to what the scripture says. But when you think about just this simple statement, the Lord himself buries Moses. What does it mean to bury someone? You prepare the grave, you prepare the, the body, you do everything that must be done for the burial. Incredible. Absolutely an incredible idea. And, and so Moses is is moving from this one place to another. And his conclusion is so awesome, if you think of it in that way, and so fitting. What a great example he is for us, how to make it to the other side. Well, we go from that, and I'll skip the Haftor portion for the sake of time, but I want to look at some things in Luke 24, starting in verse 13, which is our Brita reading for this weekend, which also connects with the human dilemma of having eyes that see spiritually and ears that hear spiritually and hearts that understand spiritually. And it talks about the time right after Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection, but it wasn't known if, in fact, he had been resurrected. There was a report that his body wasn't there, but people weren't sure what that meant. And so, starting in verse 13, it says, that same day, two of the followers of Yeshua were going toward a village about seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus, Emmaus, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And as they talked and discussed, 
Yeshua himself came up and walked along with them. Now it's important to grasp this. Yeshua knows who he is. Yeshua knows who they are. But they don't know who he is. Yeshua himself came up and walked along with them, but something kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you guys talking about? Nice, innocent. You're on a walk. What are you all talking about? I imagine Yeshua could speak southern English if he needed to. And they stopped short, and their faces were downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, gave him an answer and said, what is wrong with you? Are you like the only person who doesn't know what's going on? Did we just find the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been happening here the last few days? And Yeshua says, what things? It's such a funny interaction. I hope you see the humor in it. I think it's to be met, to be read with a sense of humor because it's hilarious knowing what Yeshua knows and how he's behaving. But it's for a point. What things? He asked them and they said, well, the things about Yeshua from Nazareth, from Nazareth. He was a prophet. He proved it by the things he did and said before God and all the people. And our high priests and, and our leaders handed him over so that he, he was sentenced to death and executed on a stake as a criminal. And then they're all like weepy. We'd hoped. We'd hoped that he would be the one to liberate Israel. We're so disappointed. Besides all that, today's the third day since those things happened. And this morning, some of the women shocked us. They were at the tomb early and they couldn't find his body and so they came back. But they also said that they had seen angels who said he's alive. So some of our friends went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but they didn't see him. So I want you to take note that they had disappointment. Do you hear it in what they're saying? They had expectations they expected that Yeshua was going to set Israel free from the occupying force of the Romans and the corruption of the collaborators. They didn't see him. I think I'm missing a page on my notes. So at this moment, Yeshua is talking to them and they think they're educating an ignoramus. And he says to them, they still don't know who he is, he says, well wait, didn't you read Moses and the prophets? Didn't you un understand what the Tanakh says, that Messiah has to suffer and he has to die in order to enter into his glory. And, and 
And didn't you understand everything that the Tanakh has to say about Messiah? And he's like opening up the scriptures to them. And even though he's doing that, they still don't know who he is. They end up going to eat with him, but not much of anything. And while they're sitting together, he breaks matzah, because it's during Passover. And he says, bracha, because that's what you do before you eat the matzah. And they're like looking at him, and they're in awe, but they still don't know who he is. And then he opens their eyes, and they realize who it is. It's like, when he was talking about the scriptures, weren't our hearts burning? It's like, whoa. No, their hearts were only partly burning. They were disagreeing with him through part of it. You know, because they were stuck in their disappointment and their expectations and their understanding of the scriptures. Instead of, instead of those three things working together to help them process what was going on, they were actually limiting and hindering them from understanding. Their expectations, their disappointments, their understanding of scripture were all surprisingly normal, but they were wrong in light of what God was actually doing and had been doing. So it goes on, it says he went in and he stayed with them. He was reclining with them at table. He took the matzah, made brocha, broke the matzah, handed it to them. And then, verse 31, their eyes were opened. Say that with me. Eyes were opened and they recognized him. Can you imagine eating a little matzah? It's like, whoa, it's you. I can't even imagine. <laughs> it's so funny because, you know, they're wondering if they saw a ghost or something when they're thinking about it all. You know, is this real? Who is this? Who is he? But I want you to see something here, verse 31. Their eyes were opened, then they recognized him. What eyes? Spiritual eyes, that's right. Spiritual eyes were opened, and then they recognized him. This is almost always necessary. Our spiritual eyes need to open in order to recognize what God is doing. Our eyes don't always see things correctly. We don't always see the facts. We don't always put the right facts together or emphasize the right things. There's this moment of recognition, but it comes after their eyes were opened, their spiritual eyes. Spiritual eyes opened, then recognition. Sometimes people can't grasp what you want them to grasp because their spiritual eyes are not yet open. And you can you can try hard to get them to see what you see and to recognize it, but until their spiritual eyes are open, they may never. And then it says he became invisible to them, and they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn inside of us as he spoke to us on the road, opening up the Tanakh to us? 
You see, he opened up the Tanakh to them, but they still needed their eyes open. They couldn't grasp what he was saying. And it's a good reminder to us, these are believers, do you get this? These are guys who have been with him. These are guys who have had fellowship with them. They have seen, they have heard, they have experienced, and even so, their expectations, their disappointments and the ways they understood the scriptures limited them and hindered them rather than helped them. Verse 33, they got up at once, they returned to Jerusalem, They found the 11 gathered there with their friends saying, it is true, the Lord has risen. Shimon saw him and then the two told what had happened on the road and how he'd become known to them in the breaking of the matzah. And while they were still talking about it, there he was standing there in the midst of them. Okay, this is like, it could be spooky, or hilarious, or a little bit of both. I think it reveals the sense of humor Yeshua has. Because, you know, he could have made it not scary. Startled and terrified, they thought they were seeing a ghost. But he said to them, why are you so upset? Why are these doubts welling up inside of you? Look, look at my hands and my feet. It's me. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood. And as he showed them his hands and his feet, he explained to them the things that can be found about him, and their eyes were opened. It was an amazing transformation. And while this was going on, they were experiencing his his new physicality, but he was different. He didn't look exactly the same. He didn't sound exactly the same. They, they didn't say, wait, wait, wait a minute. I don't know who you are, but I know there's a Yeshua under there because I know your voice. They didn't recognize him, but they could touch him, and he wasn't a ghost. He had physicality. And verse 41 says, while they were still unable to believe it for joy, and they stood there dumbfounded, he says to them, and this is probably my favorite part of the whole passage, he says, got anything to eat? (laughs) Isn't that incredible? Uh, It's like he said, I'm starving. (laughs) Got anything to eat? You can imagine he didn't really enjoy his last supper. (laughs) He hadn't eaten for days. He's famished, and he says, what you got to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish, which he took and he ate in front of them. And broiled means it was cooked over fire. You know, they didn't have, like, some convection oven of some sort. You know, we'll just pop it under the broiler. No, it was, it was cooked over fire. And he eats, which is so amazing because his resurrected body, not yet glorified, still gets hungry. And I love the fact that this, this whole passage ends with that. What's to eat? It's so surprising. 
It, it's so wonderful. It's so normal in a sense, right? And it shows that this Yeshua who is now hungry is the one who they had been with at Pesach. You know, I'm, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten for days. Who knew? Who knew? And it's a, it's a beautiful symmetry, this meal, and the time he goes up to Galilee later and he spends with Peter and says to Peter, do you love me? Remember, Yeshua was cooking breakfast on the beach, on fire, with fresh fish, just like this. And he's asking, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, sure I do, you know. Okay, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Oh, I have a question. Do you really love me? Yeah. Okay, take care of my sheep. Feed them. Take care of my people. And Yeshua asked it to the point of irritation, but he was trying to get to something. The Lord did not plan to rebuke Peter. Peter was guilty enough. The Lord was trying to recover Peter. Peter, you've been thinking it's all about you and what you've gone through. You're measuring everything by your own expectations and your disappointments and how you thought things were going to go. But I got a plan here and you're fitting into it. Here's the plan. You're called to be a shepherd, not a fisherman. Everything changes. When I left, you went back to being what you were, not what you will be. It's not until Peter writes his letters, his epistles, that he says, I'm a shepherd like you. Talking to the elders. And then you realize, wow, he really has changed. He's really embraced the call. He's really come into the position God has for him. His heart has changed. Do you see it? Yeshua will use a sense of humor. Yeshua will use food and fellowship. Yeshua will use, like, ghost stories. <laughs> Yeshua will use disappearing acts. Wait, he was here. Where'd he go? He's back! He will use any means necessary to open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. Because only when those things are open can we get what he's trying to say and what he wants for us to do. And as we're coming to Yom Kippur, we're remembering he's done it all. He's done all the sacrificing. He's done all the the works of power that are necessary, he has obtained for us an atonement we couldn't obtain for ourselves. He's rescued us from the penalty that we truly deserve. What does he want? He wants us to humbly come before him. Tell him the truth, the honest truth. And with humility and contrition, no moral posturing and signaling, you know, like I'm so good. 
but humble ourselves before him with contrition. Not mindful of all that we've become on our own, but mindful of all that he makes us into. And grateful. Not glossing it over and not wrapping it up in too much religiosity to the point where we forget what we're doing because we're just going through the motions. But to humble ourselves. We fast for a reason. We weaken ourselves. We deprive ourselves of, of normal strength building and sustenance. We, we become weak before God and we say, God, I have no power. I look to you. You have it all and I really have nothing. And I come before you honest and I come before you weak and saying, I need you. I need you. I need you. And I can't go on without you. And in your mercy, hear me when I cry to you. And in your mercy, raise me up so that I can be of some use to you and to others around me who need your mercy. And when we do all that, you know what? These are days of awe, and they're awesome days. And they conclude with us being ready for Sukkot, that really, we're like shacks. We're nothing glorious. We're like a shack that God comes to live in. Imagine you're a, a hobo living under a bridge, and you're going to invite God to come live with you. That's sort of what we are. <laughs> and Sukkot reminds us of that, and that he humbled himself to live with us and accompany us. It's a marvelous thing that we're preparing for and going through. And when we experience it like this, you know what? There are all sorts of funny things that will happen. But it'll all be for good. And in the end, the Lord will say, you got anything to eat? <laughs> and we're saying, Lord, I, it would be my honor to feed you. And he says, okay, today feed my flock. Today, take care of them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercies. Thank you for the immense in curious ways that you connect to us and reach down to us and reach up to us, the ways that you take your life and impart it to us. Lord, I pray that, that during these days of awe as we're getting ready to recognize you as not only our Messiah and our Lord, but our high priest and the Lamb who takes away the sins for us and the world. Lord, let it be that we stay humble before you and contrite before you, that we could hear your voice and under, see with our spiritual eyes and hear with our spiritual ears and understand with our spiritual hearts what you're doing. In Yeshua's name we pray.
We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'era Adonai p'navelecha v'yichunecha. Yisa Adonai p'navelecha v'yasemlecha. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.